This is the City of Refuge, Thomaston, Georgia, Sunday morning podcast. The following is a live recorded sermon by Pastor Jeff Deal. And we're going to jump into um, one more, at least one more conversation around the same people, the same uh stories that we've been talking about for a little while. <coughs> I thought maybe after last week we might be finished with the David and Solomon stories for a bit and move on to something else. Um, so first of the week I started contemplating that and meditating on it, praying about it, but I, I couldn't get away from it. And I didn't know why because I didn't have anything specific that I still wanted to discuss, and so all week long it's been like I can't come up with anything else for Sunday, but I don't have anything from there, so I don't know what we're going to do. And um, and this morning I was leaving the house, and uh, and Tracy said something about um, being ready. She said, I know you're ready for church. I said, well, I'm glad you know, because that makes one of us. Because as of when I left the house this morning, I, I wasn't ready. That doesn't mean that I ignored it or neglected my responsibilities through the week. It's just that nothing nothing was popping up. But sure enough, something started to pop up uh, as I continued to read and pray and meditate this morning. <clears throat> and it's it's a pretty powerful, I think, exclamation point on what we've been talking about for a while with the comparison contrast between David and his son Solomon and how their lives were lived out and how their lives ended and what the uh, aftermath was of each one. And so uh, we are going to look at a couple of passages of Scripture. I'm just going to go ahead and read both of them to you up front here. And the first is from 2 Samuel chapter, chapter 12, verses 13 and 14. <clears throat> then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan replied, The Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. But because by doing this you have shown utter contempt for the Lord, the son born to you will die. And then the other uh, is the third psalm, which I read to start out the service. And let's read it again and review it together here. Lord, how many are my foes, how many rise against me, many are saying of me, God will not deliver him. But you, Lord, are a shield around me, my glory, the one who lifts my head high. I call out to the Lord, and he answers me from his holy mountain. I lie down and sleep. I wake again because the Lord sustains me. I will not fear, though tens of thousands assail me on every side. Arise, Lord, deliver me, my God. Strike all my enemies on the jaw. Break the teeth of the wicked. From the Lord comes deliverance. May your blessing be on your people. If those two passages of Scripture seem disconnected from each other, they're not, not by any means. Because the uh, Scripture in Second Samuel, of course, is reflective upon the life of David, and this psalm was written by David, and this psalm was actually written when David was in pursuit for fear of being killed by his own son, who was out to kill him. And so 
we learn these lessons and what we've learned from the lives of David and Solomon over the past few weeks is that David was always repenting. He was always crying out to God for forgiveness. He was always crying out to God in general. He was always asking God to show up. He was always demonstrating his utter dependence on the presence of God. And you walk away with the feeling that this man really believed that if he tried to live outside the presence of God, his life would be an utter disaster and he would just crumble away into nothing and die. That's the feeling I get when I read about this man, David, who was the second king of Israel. When I read the story about Solomon, I get a different feeling because I don't see Solomon as a man who is a perpetual worshiper. I don't see Solomon as a man who is always in a mode of repentance. I don't see Solomon as a man who is consistently crying out to God. So I have to ask, why? Why did Solomon not follow the same pattern that his father followed? He grew up in his father's home. He was around his father, I'm sure, all the time. He was his father's oldest living child. So the, father, the child that was conceived with Bathsheba out of adultery died. That's what Nathan is talking about when he's talking to David in the first passage of Scripture that I read. He comes to him, he tells him a story, he confronts him because David is furious that this man would ignore his own thousands of live, head of livestock and go take the one little pet lamb from his neighbor and sacrifice it in order to feed his company. And Nathan looks at David and said, you're that guy. You're guilty of what I just described. And so I don't see the response that David had to Nathan's challenge from Solomon. What was David's response? It was to say, I have sinned against the Lord. I have searched, looked, read the stories from the life of Solomon, and unless I'm overlooking something somewhere, I cannot find where Solomon, when he was living in some level of disobedience to God, just openly, blatantly declared, I have sinned against God. This is a man who at times was worshiping foreign gods against the direct instruction of the one true God who had said, you are not to worship foreign gods, period. But he was doing it anyway. But I never see him repenting for that. I never see him begging God for forgiveness. I never see him turning the corner and going a different direction. As a matter of fact, as he lives his life, it gets worse and worse. So I don't know if that raises a question mark for you, but it certainly does for me. 
to ask, why? What's the difference? If this is where you were raised, if this is who raised you, if these are the influences in your life, if you're living during the same time frame, if you're living in the same culture, if you're dealing with the same stuff, why did you live so differently? Well, in men's group Wednesday night, we were talking about this, and somebody brought up a really good point, which may be the point. I think it's at least a point. And that is that Solomon had it made. He was a spoiled brat. Okay? When Solomon was born, he was born into wealth. He was born into privilege. He was born into power. On the day he drew his first breath on planet Earth, he was designated to be the king of the nation that he was living in. He never wanted for anything. Solomon never went hungry. Solomon never wanted for new clothes. He never was uncomfortable in terms of his living conditions. He never had to get out and walk barefoot 10 miles each way to work. Solomon had it made. I guess you could call it a blessing. That he had privilege, that he had wealth, that he had abundance, that he had the best of foods, he had the best of transportation, he had the best of military protection, he had the best of influence and power. And on top of that, God gives him the opportunity to ask for one blessing. What does he ask for? He asked for wisdom and was granted that gift of wisdom and discernment and became what's known as the wisest man to ever live. Solomon has it all, right? How does that help to answer the question, why? Well, I think it requires some speculation. But maybe because Solomon had never been on the run for his life, maybe because he'd never been holed up in a cave hungry or freezing or roasting or plagued by the rats and bugs around him or sick to his stomach, Maybe because he hadn't had to deal with the hardships that his father dealt with. Maybe he didn't feel this need to reach out to God. Maybe other things in life were being used by him to satisfy the needs. Maybe he didn't see God as a resource that he had to have because he had everything he wanted. Well... There are powerful lessons, obviously, in that for you and me. And I think we take the lessons from the life of his father, David. Because there were times in David's life when he was very comfortable. There were times in David's life when he was wealthy. Now, David didn't come from the same place Solomon came from. David came from a simple farming family. From the time he was a young boy, his chores and his responsibilities were to go out into the fields and to look after the sheep. He lived a simple life. He was one of many sons of the same mother and father. But he was tapped and he was anointed to serve as a king. But he grew up with challenges. We're told that David faced vicious animals out in the wild and had to figure out how to 
defeat those challenges, to overcome those challenges and to defeat those enemies. David had to figure things out, and you know what he had to do? What he found was absolutely necessary was he had to reach out to his Lord and his God to be able to find the resources and the power and the strength to have the wisdom to know how to face these challenges that were coming to him in life. It's not by coincidence that when he goes to visit his brothers who are part of the army and they're at war, and he sees this giant from the opposing army threatening and laughing at, intimidating and mocking the army of Israel, that David stood flat-footed and said, if you're not going to go fight him, I will. I don't think it's coincidence that we're told in that same story that David had faced bears and lions while he was watching sheep. Why are we told that? Why is that important? Because he had found through his reliance on the all-powerful Creator when he was a young boy facing these animals out in the wild, he had learned, he had found out that God was capable of stepping in when he was not capable. Right? He didn't step out there just as some arrogant, brash, cocky, young kid to face a giant. No, he stepped out in the, in the absolute confidence that the same God who had helped him kill the lion and kill the bear was going to show up and help him kill the giant. That's his experience. That's the foundation of his faith. That's what Solomon didn't have. We find the answers in the life of David. After he had been tapped as the king, but Saul is in position as king, and Saul becomes jealous of David, then he has to take off and he has to go on the run for his life. And he's hiding out in the wilderness and he has a very, very difficult existence. But what does he do during those times? He perpetually repents. He perpetually cries out to God. And he perpetually worships. He never depends on his own schemes, his own strategies, his own resources, his own muscle to be able to get the job done. No, he has learned through the experiences of life how to effectively face adversaries and enemies and distractions and problems that life has to bring. But, you know what happens with David? He defeats his enemies. And Saul dies and is gone and David becomes king. So what happens now? He moves into the palace. He's got plenty of money. He has military support around him. He has protection. He has good food. He has good drink. He has nice clothes. He has influence and power. But how does he handle that? This is so valuable for us to know. He handles it the exact same way that he handled it when he was poor and scared and hungry and cold. He perpetually repented. He perpetually cried out to God. 
And he perpetually worshipped. The circumstances of life did not change the character of the man. The problems that life threw at him, the enemies that came at him, once he's comfortable and has enough, did not cause him to push God off the center. I don't know how much David is to blame for the way Solomon lived. I don't know if he spoiled him so much, if he didn't require anything of him, that he positioned his son for failure. I don't know. I can't speak to that. The Bible doesn't speak to it. And the Bible speaks pretty specifically to the character of this man David and calls him a man after the heart of God. So I'm thinking that he did a pretty good job. But when David became comfortable and still committed sin and is confronted with his sin, what does he do? He repents. He cries out to God. And he worships. He continues in that pattern. So I have to believe that after he and Bathsheba are married and they're having other children and Solomon is growing up in his home, that Solomon is seeing this lifestyle that his father lives. But for some reason... He just doesn't fall in and follow that pattern. Now, I don't like it that that's the truth. I wish Solomon had followed and been another David, had been David Jr., that we would call his name in the same way that we call David's name. I think that Solomon's name is called in a lot of uh, ways in religious circles and in church in a positive way. (laughs) Actually, and I don't, you know, I don't, I don't want to be a rebel about everything. I know sometimes it seems like that. I really don't want to be like that. But actually, all through my life, when I've, when I've heard about Solomon, talked about Solomon, I've never really had any negative thoughts about it. I've never really had a negative vibe about the man. I thought, well, the dude is involved heavily in the Scripture and has two books in the Bible that he wrote. He must be a great guy. Right? How can you make the Bible? You made the cut. A lot of people were cut from the team. Their books didn't make it. Josephus' book didn't make it. Solomon's got two books in there. This, he's got to be up here with Elijah and, and the Apostle Paul and Moses, Right? Maybe his books are in the Bible to show us a little bit of a contrast to the books that surround it. I don't know. Because actually, I mean, and do this if you'd like to, go read the Song of Solomon this week. And, 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 And align that with kingdom purpose, align it with obedience, align it with repentance, align it with crying out to God, align it with worship. It's going to be a little bit of a challenge. Read Ecclesiastes. Read the story of David again, and then read Ecclesiastes, which is the words of Solomon. And Mason actually pointed this out Wednesday night. That you see David, who's a worshiper down to the core, who is a prayerful 
warrior down in his core who is begging forgiveness all the time, who is crying out to his maker. And then you got Solomon over here in Ecclesiastes talking about how life is ridiculous and don't mean anything and it's just fading away. And never even points to God as being, you know, uh, someone we should hitch ourselves to to direct us through life. It's, it's really a very carnal message that you can gather from a lot of it. Why? Well, that why question led me to another question, which led me to an answer. The next question is, so if these two men, father, son, were so vastly different, what is it that each one depended on? What did each one depend on? I think that's a question that, that every individual sitting here and every individual who's alive on planet Earth should pause and ask themselves, what is it that I depend on? What do I depend on? Money? A relationship or relationships with other people? I'm going to say to both of those, to a certain extent, yes is okay. Right? It's not money that's, at the, that's the root of all evil. It's what? The love of money. If you have money as your God at the center of your life and you're in love with it and you... You just, uh, it, it's so important to you that you're devastated if you're not in a position you want to be in, then that's a problem. What do I depend on? How often do I go check my retirement account out of fear that something weird's happening with it and I'm not going to be able to depend on that? Right now, I don't check mine very often because it could throw me into depression if I, because since the first of the year, mine's lost like 20%. But the people in the know, because I'm not in the know, every time they talk to me, I have to get out an eco economics textbook, try to figure out what they're saying. People that are in the know say, just leave it alone. It'll be all right. It'll recover. It always does. Just leave it alone. Don't, don't do anything drastic. No knee jerk. What do I depend on? Do I depend on my career? Do I depend on the church? Some religious establishment? Do I depend on some philosophy? Do I depend on... What is it that I depend on? It's the question I came to for both of these men. And when it comes to Solomon, I think the answer is pretty obvious. What did he depend on? He depended on his wealth. He depended on his position of power. He depended on the relationships he had with other influential people. He depended on the philosophies and the theories and the big ideas that the world had to offer. Don't take my word for it. It's all throughout his story. Why does Solomon feel like it's necessary to be cronies with the leader of a pagan nation to the extent that he marries 
the leader's daughter against the explicit instruction of God Almighty because he has a huge dependence on those relationships. Solomon depends on his position in the world. He was a very powerful man at that time. He was a man of influence. He was a man of military might. He was a man of extreme wealth. And he depended on it. The side note to that is that utter dependence on anything, and I say utter dependence because we have to depend on relationships with other people. We have to depend on the church. We have to depend on money. But utter dependence on anything that's outside of God's purpose for us or outside of God himself will 100% guaranteed produce destructive results at some point. It may be slow coming, but it's coming. Those destructive results may show up one at a time, but they're coming. They may start to destroy from the inside out or from the outside in, but they're coming. Because when we compromise and push God the least little bit off the center, then things start to shift in us and about us and in terms of God's view of us, and the results are always destructive. So with all his position and all his power and all his influence and all his cool relationships with the leaders of the world, as time goes on, the destruction starts to happen. Things start to chip away. And he goes from marrying one woman, worshiping her pagan god, to marrying multiple women from foreign nations and starting to worship their gods, to going and actually building shrines and altars in the high places to these gods, still worshiping the one true God or trying to, but worshiping all these other gods at the same time. That's what Solomon depended on. What did David depend on? David depended on, in a word, grace. He depended on grace. You don't see the word grace used that often in the Old Testament. Grace is really a New Testament concept. When Jesus came and died for our sins, rose from the dead, he offered us grace. But I have to tell you that grace existed in the Old Testament. That grace was available in the Old Testament. And it was not there exactly like it was in the New Testament as, as uh, God's unmerited favor, which offers us the opportunity for salvation because pre-Jesus' existence on the earth, there was no opportunity for blood-bought salvation, that is permanent salvation that comes through the shedding of the blood of the perfect Lamb once and for all. 
Back in those days, you had to continually sacrifice animals and to shed their blood and to burn them on altars of sacrifice in order to be forgiven and in order to stay in right relationship with God. But grace was there because grace is so much more than just unmerited favor that forgives us of our sins. You see, when David is approached by Nathan and he's told the story about the wealthy man who has all his farm animals and all this wealth who has somebody come to visit and he wants to cook a, a nice meal but instead of using one of his own livestock he goes to the neighbor who's a poor man with a house full of kids and they have one pet lamb and he takes that lamb from him and brings it home and slaughters it and cooks it to serve his guest. And David is infuriated at the story when Nathan tells it to him, and Nathan looks at him and says, you're that guy. You've got all this. You've got the palace. You've got the family. You've got the wealth. You've got the influence. You've got the military. You've got tens of thousands of head of livestock out here to choose from. There are tens of thousands of women for you to choose from. But you went and took the one little lamb from a guy who was a servant to you, a loyal soldier out there fighting on the battlefield on your behalf, and you took his wife for your own. You're the guilty party. And David is furious and says, He's furious at the first story, but when he's confronted with that, he says, I have sinned against God. And I saw it this morning that that confession of sin amounts to David falling onto grace. Why? If we do what? If we confess our sin... He is, what, faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, which is what grace is all about. And David makes full confession right here. I have sinned against the Lord and every sin, we've said this, by the way, is a sin against the Lord. It may also be a sin against a person, but it is a sin against the Lord. And I asked last week how many of us have just not done that, that being just fallen on our faces and just in full confession admitted our sins. We keep trying to serve God. We keep talking about loving God. We keep trying to be obedient. We keep trying to bless our fellow man in, in response to the words of Jesus. We never feel quite 100% fulfilled. We never feel 100% spiritually satisfied. We always feel like we're striving, that word I hate, or seeking or trying to get there, we never quite get there. We're kind of inching toward there, but we're not there. Just this feeling of spiritual frustration that exists at some level. Well, I would venture to guess that's because we have never fully confessed 
our sins and laid it out before God in all honesty, bearing our souls before Him and allowing His grace to come in and to offer that opportunity for full forgiveness because full, listen, full forgiveness does not come until there's full confession. What do we think we're doing hiding part of it? What do we think we're doing holding on to part of it? Well, Jeff, what kind, what kind of sin, you know? I mean, th there's nothing horrible that I've done that I haven't confessed and repented for. Well, what about the, the little thing you're holding on to that amounts to unforgiveness? What about the little thing that you're holding on to that amounts to bitterness? What about the little thing that you are holding on to that amounts to disobedience in some form because it's in the Word of God, that those things cannot exist in the heart and life of a child of God. What about the little compartment? Remember that message a long time ago? The compartment, we want to declare Jesus is Lord, but He can't be Lord of all because there's this one compartment I've still got to be Lord of. I can't turn that over. Right? It's too important to me. I get too much uh, satisfaction and energy out of dwelling on it, thinking about it, having an attitude about it. No. Confession is huge because confession calls us to fall on grace. And when we confess, you know, David could have made all kinds of excuses for what he did, all kinds of explanations. He could have tried to justify it in this way or that. But instead he says, I have sinned against the Lord. And when he offers full confession, he falls on grace and forgiveness happens. The next thing that happens is that Nathan tells David, look, God forgives you. Hey, God has heard your confession and has forgiven your sin, but there's a consequence to your rebellion. The child that Bathsheba is giving you out of that relationship is not going to live. That's the result. Hey, I, I can't tell you what some preachers would tell you. And that is that if you just surrender your life to the Lord, He's going to bless you in every way and nothing bad is ever going to happen again. You know? I can't tell you that the product of your disobedience is just going to vanish and there going to be no, there's going to be no collateral damage. There's not going to be any negative consequence because of it if you confess it and repent and experience God's forgiveness. I can't tell you that. As a matter of fact, I promise you that there's going to be negative consequences to negative behaviors. There's going to be negative consequences to disobedience, whether you repent or not. It'd be nice if it was the other way, but it's not. So David understands that he's confessing and repenting. But when the Lord's answer comes, he receives and accepts the Lord's answer. Oh, he prays that the child will live. He fasts. He sits in an ash pile covered up in sackcloth and prays for seven days that the child will live, but the child dies. What's David's next move? He gets up. 
takes a shower, puts on clean clothes, has something to eat, and worships the Lord. You know what some people would do? They'd be mad at God that their baby didn't live. Right? Some people get mad at God about the negative consequences that happen when the negative consequences are the result of their rebellious behavior. And they get mad at God when the result shows up. Well, I confessed and repented, but there are still results. There's still consequence. And what are we mad about? God told us there were going to be consequences before we ever did it. Shouldn't be any surprises. But David is able to fall on grace and experience the power that caused him to be able to move on, to move forward. So the answer to what did they depend on? Solomon depended on his stuff, his wealth. David depended on grace. So what does grace amount to really? Just quickly, and I've, I've preached this a few times through the years. It's been a long time here. But yes, it is unmerited favor. So that God gives you what you don't deserve. Because you don't deserve salvation, neither do I. He also withholds from you what you do deserve, which is eternal separation from Him and punishment. It is that, but man, it's so much more. It is the empowering presence of God. It's always there. Empowering presence of God that enables us to be everything He created us to be and to do everything He's called us to do. Grace is always there. It's, it's constant. It's part of the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. We can always fall on it. We can always reach out for it. And I can prove to you that it's more than just for salvation because Paul was always saying to the churches, grace be unto you. These are people who are already saved. These are people who have already received God's unmerited favor. But at the beginnings of books and at the ends of books, Paul is saying grace to you. Grace. Why does he say that to them? Because he knows they're going to need it. Because after you're saved, you need grace as much as you did before you were saved. You need that empowering presence to be there and sustain you. And that's why David fell on it. Because he had to have it. Listen to this from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This is Paul speaking. He says, But by the grace of God I am what I am. And His grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. By the grace of God, I am what I am. That should be the testimony of every kingdom son, kingdom daughter. What do we depend on? 
whatever your answer would have been at the start of the service, if it was different from grace, it should have changed by now. Because I can tell you right now, leaving this place in a minute, if you're not falling steadily, daily, on the grace of God, you're just spinning your wheels or going backwards. And it is a bountiful, beautiful benefit of living life in the Spirit that we just don't take advantage of like we should. If we depend on our stuff, if we depend on our relationships with other people, if we depend on our position, if we depend on whatever level of authority and power that we have, and not have full dependence on the grace of God, we're always going to be less than what we could be or should be as kingdom sons and daughters. We're going to be unfulfilled. We're going to be dissatisfied. We're going to be frustrated. That frustration will cause us to behave in certain ways that makes it even more counterproductive to where we're trying to go. Should be falling on his grace. How do we do that? We do it the same way David did it. When we mess up, we repent. We confess and repent. When we mess up, we confess and repent. And when the results come from us having messed up, we get up, dust ourselves off, and move on down the road. You know, the lepers at the gates, remember that story in the Kings somewhere? Sitting there dying outside the gates, they won't let them in the city because they're diseased. They have a contagious disease. And they're just sitting around in a circle looking at each other. Finally, one of them says, well, what are we going to do? Well, I don't know. What do y'all want to do? He said, well, the way I see it, we've got a couple choices here. We can either sit here and die. That's what's happening now. Or we can get up and go down the road and see what's down there. And there's a great potential that we may die down there, but we know we're going to die here. Let's try it. And they go down the road, and they find that the enemy army has fled and left all their spoils laying there unattended. So at the very least, these four guys who are sick get to live it up <laughs> for whatever amount of time they have left. Right? Look. It's so sad and tragic when people settle into the fallout from that bad situation and they just live there. What a waste of life. I said last week, I've, I haven't committed the huge sins. I've never killed anybody. I've never committed adultery. I've, I have stolen a few times. Like one time I stole a Reese's cup when I was like nine from a convenience store and one time I stole a box of markers out of the school store when it was unattended and some girl told on me. But I haven't like robbed a bank or 
<laughs> held anybody up at gunpoint on the street. <coughs> but I've done some dumb stuff. I've done some rebellious stuff. I've been disobedient to God a good bit in my life. And whatever the fallout from that has been, I could have just sat down in it. Just sat down in it and just decided that's where I was going to live. And there are some people in the room that have done some things way worse than I've ever done. But there are also some people in the room that have been victimized by the dumb stuff other people have done. Either way, we got a choice in front of us. We can decide just to sit down in it, just sit down in the squalor and look at each other and waste away and let the fallout from those things dominate our lives and keep us suppressed. Or we can get up and dust off and say, well, it's not going to be easy, but I just believe there's something down the road that'll be better than this. So I confess and repent for my part of it, and I accept whatever the consequences are, but I'm not going to hang out in those. I'm going to fall on grace at every opportunity. And I'm going to cry out to God perpetually. And I'm going to be a worshiper. That's why I've been moved here recently just to challenge y'all on Sundays to worship. It's worship, worship, worship. Because it's one thing I know that we can come together as a group and really do, and it's visible, and it's, it's obvious what we're doing. Okay? I can't follow you around all week and see what you're doing with the rest of it, but we can come in here and worship together. That's what David depended on. That's what I'm going to depend on. That's what I challenge you to depend on. And we should say with Paul and like Paul every day, I am what I am by the grace of God. Nothing without it. will never be anything without it. And no matter what's happened in my life, I know I can go there. I can fall on that, and he's always going to be faithful. Father, thank you that you are faithful. You just, you just never waver on your faithfulness to us. And any time we find there's a distance between you and us, we can be sure that you did not create that distance. We created it. If we created the distance, it's our responsibility to close the gap. And that responsibility includes confession. Father, I sinned against you when I did this. Repentance, forgive me of my sins as I forgive others who sin against me. And to cry out to you always and to worship all the time. Thank you that we are what we are by your grace, and I pray that by your grace we would discover more this week of who we're supposed to be in you and move more in that direction. Thank you for your word. In your name we pray, amen. Amen.